0: Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. Good morning. It is great to see everyone this morning. You know, if you were to ask me, Ryan, what is your greatest fear? Well, what is your greatest fear, not just personally, but, but for Redeemer Church? Many of you know me well, and you, you know that, that um, I'm not a guy who, who lives in a lot of fear. I'm not a guy who, who is paralyzed by being afraid. Um, But you probably would be surprised uh, by my answer. My answer would not be, well, I'm afraid that we will stop growing. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say, well, I'm afraid that we won't retain our members and that members will start going somewhere else. I'm not afraid of that at all. I wouldn't be afraid if if we are no longer relevant to our culture. That doesn't put fear in me. You say, Ryan, what really, what what is your biggest fear for Redeemer Church? I wouldn't wouldn't say, well, that we won't have exciting worship services anymore. Look, none of those things strike fear in me, that people will stop coming, that people will start leaving, that we won't have exciting worship services, that we won't be relevant. None of those things strike fear in me, church. But if there were two things that were to strike fear in me, the first thing is that we would not take the Great Commission seriously. That we would go through our religious exercises and we would do our religious services and we would sing religious songs and that we would even quote unquote celebrate the cross, but... When Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, we just say those things every week, but we don't do them? That scares me. That scares me. That that strikes fear in me, because I don't want that to happen. But the second thing that strikes fear in me is that we will be a people who don't take our sins seriously before God. We have conditioned ourselves in such a way that we can sing about the heinousness of sin and we can sing about the glory of the cross. But for whatever reason, we have found a way to compartmentalize our lives, compartmentalize our sins such that they're untouched such that they go unconfessed. And so, as we think about our own lives and our own hearts... We need to be thinking about honesty and openness before God in who we really are and what we're really all about. Because I know that God hates, he hates outward religion that does not possess an inner relationship with him, an inner love for him. I don't, I don't want us to be like Eli's sons who were fraudulent in their worship of God. I don't even want us to be like Eli who was lazy in his service to God. I don't even want us to be like Saul who was selfish in his relationship to God. God has been doing a work in us as we've been studying the book of Samuel. And I believe, church, He has truly been moving us away from fraudulence, away from laziness, away from selfishness, away from sin, away from that kind of religiosity that we have a tendency to express and more toward earnest, honest worship of Him, glad worship. And and I think that the last three or four weeks have been especially helpful in that as we've looked at God's covenant with David. With, with, with David's prayer back to God and, and the king in his glory and the king in his shame and all of that. But, church, my prayer this week has been that this sermon will produce a church full of people who know how to deal with our sin. That this sermon will produce a repenting people, an honest people, a humble people, a genuine people who love God from the heart and not just mere from the exercises. That, he will, that we will not be a deceitful, selfish, hypocritical people who keep our sins to ourselves and lock them up in our hearts and express them in the secret place. And then when we come to church, we look really good on the outside, but on the inside, we are rotten. That's been my prayer this week. And so we need to be honest and we need to be real and we need to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And so two weeks ago, we looked at the King and His glory. I mean, we saw that the king was victorious in battle, that he was loving toward people in need, that he was compassionate toward those that were struggling, but he was supreme overall. But in his supremacy, his head got really big and his heart got really calloused and he started looking in the mirror too much. And so last week we saw not not the king in his glory, but the king in his what? In his shame. And we saw the transgressions of the king. And we saw that the king was passive, that he wasn't where he was supposed to be doing the thing that he was supposed to do for the people that he was supposed to do it for. But instead, he's he's doing what he wants to do for his own fleshly satisfaction and he exercises covetousness as he lusts after a woman who is not his wife but who happens to be the wife of one of the men on the battlefield that serves him. And so he abuses his power and he commits adultery and he... Uh, schemes evil, and he deceives Uriah, and he ultimately has to murder Uriah because Uriah is too honorable of a man to fall into the plan that David has. And David not only betrays Uriah, but he betrays all of the men in his army and the overall nation of Israel because of his selfishness in the midst of his fleshly uh, life. That's what we saw. And by God's grace, the prophet... The prophet Nathan comes knocking on David's door, and, and they sit down, and Nathan tells them a story about a man who had um, flocks and flocks worth of sheep, but he would not. He would not use his own. He had to go out and get a poor man's lamb, one little ewe lamb, and stole it and killed it for himself when a visitor came into town. And David got really upset, and he says, I'm going to make that man pay fourfold. That was absolutely wrong. And what does Nathan say to David? You You are the man. You are the man. And immediately, because of God's grace and because David's heart was given over to God, and he did love God, David said, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, we might be tempted to think that that's all that David did. He said, I have sinned against the Lord, and that was the the effect, that was the impact of his repentance. Well, that's what the narrator records for us in Samuel, but... But we know that David went and spent time with God in repentance. It was not just merely a cursory or or terse statement, I have sinned. He goes and gets alone with God, and he pours out his heart to God in repentance. He pours out his heart to God in shame over what he has done. And for that reason, church, I want to ask you to turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is our text today. And you'll see why that's the case at the very beginning in the introduction. See, if we're we're asking the question, what does repentance look like? What does repentance sound like? What is repentance? How, How can I even know if I've repented? Or am I just a pretender? Am I just a fake? Am I just a fraudulent person? Well, we see repentance played out in the life of David right here as he writes out his prayer to God as Psalm 51 records it. And so, church, this is what I want you to understand, that David has two big desires. He has two big desires in his repentance, okay? And the first one is personal, and the second one is corporate. And if you're thinking about what does repentance sound like, what does it look like, what is is the heartbeat of repentance, David is about to give it to us, and this is it. It is, restore me personally and use me corporately. Restore me personally and use me corporately. That's the heartbeat of repentance, and that's what we're going to see in David. God, restore me personally personally. But don't just leave me alone. Don't just let me live my own life. Use me in a big way. Use me in people's lives. Use me to encourage and bless and strengthen and help and, and, and teach and instruct people in the way of repentance and in the way of a, of a new life in you. And so that's his goal. And so this is what I want to do, church. I want to, I want to I want to preach this text in a first person kind of way. I want to mirror the heartbeat of David here. I want to mirror the, I want to mirror the prayer of David so that you can, you can really grasp the, 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 the effect of David's desires to God. And so, and so David says, Lord, restore me personally. And to do that, I first of all, I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for, for your forgiveness, God. Have mercy on me, O God. I know you have a heart of compassion, God. I know you forgive sinners. I know you help sinners in their pitiful condition. I've seen you do it for others. You've done it for me in the past. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, your loyal love, your your unfailing love, your covenant love. Have mercy on me according to your abundant mercy that is the wealthiness of your love. The treasure chest of your love. Father, I I picture this treasure chest of all of these jewels and rubies and gold and silver and all of these wonderful things that are beautiful, but instead of it being those physical things, I see your love and your mercy and your grace and your kindness and your generosity overflowing from this treasure chest of love, Father. And I want to pray that you will extend that love, that generosity, that abundance of wealth, of your grace to me right now because I need it. Blot out my transgressions. Wipe me completely clean. Father, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins. Purify me. Pronounce me clean 100%. Like if David was was living in, in today's world, he would say, Father, I don't want that $5 car wash. I want to go down and get that $75 detailed job where it gets underneath the seats and up on the dash and in every crevice. I don't want to be partially clean. I don't want to be halfway clean. I want to be fully and completely restored to You and clean in Your presence. Restore me personally, Lord. I ask for forgiveness of my sins and in order to do so, Lord, I I confess my sin. I confess my sin because I know my transgressions. I know that I have trespassed over the no trespassing sign. I I have offended you and I am guilty. My sin is ever before me. Like I see Bathsheba every day. I see what I did to her. Every day I see how I have created despondency in her and sadness in her and I see what I've done to the nation. I am completely aware of my sins against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against their family, against the army, against Joab the commander, against the entire nation and against my servants who have brought them into my sin. I realize my sin is before me every day. But Lord, against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and and blameless in your judgment. I'm not saying I didn't sin against all those people. I absolutely did. But what I know is that my sin is first and foremost against a holy God. You are righteous and right and beautiful and pure and holy. That means you are separate and set apart. And you have called me to be your king among your people, and I have been anything but set apart. I have been anything but separate. I have been unholy. I have been unclean. I have been fleshly. I have been selfish. Against you, Lord, have I sinned, and I have violated your holiness and your blamelessness. And so the words that you have brought to me by Nathan the prophet, they are right words. They are true words. And every judgment that you exercise on me, every discipline that you bring to me is justified because I deserve it. Man, I, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Like, not only do I have actual sins, not only have I had hidden sins, Father, I realize that, but I have original sin. I, it wasn't like I was trucking along in life a very good person, and, and I had very good desires and honest and an honest heart and a humble heart my whole life. I have known sin from the very beginning. I've been a sinner. Has my heart beat for your glory? Yes, it has. But I have still always been a trespasser. And I admit that right now. And I confess it. I I have original sin. I have actual sin. I've had hidden sins. I have heart sins. I confess my sin to you, God. I am guilty. And this is what I know about you. Verse 6. You delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Church, I want to give you just a little bit of of context. These words in verse 6, the inward being and the secret heart, they're not very common words in the Bible. But one of the places where this word is used is when Hezekiah the king plugged up the waterway in the walls of Jerusalem so that... The Ammonite king could, the Ammonite army could not come in and see, hey, we could get in through that canal and we could take over Jerusalem and, and get them. So he plugged it up and pulled up all the water so that the, the invading army couldn't have water, number one, and couldn't have a way in, number two. Well, what is that? So now David's using it, inward being, secret heart. Th- this is what he's getting at. This is what he's getting at. Just as like from what, you know, this is, happens after David's life, but just as Hezekiah, just as Hezekiah plugged up the water and didn't allow an entryway, this is what I've done. I've plugged up my heart. I've not allowed an entryway of the love of God, the grace of God, the power of God, and the glory of God to enter into parts of my heart. I have kept it for myself, for my own glory, and for my own ways. And Lord, this is what I know. You want me to unplug my heart you want me to open it up, and you not only want to see it, but you want to invade it, and you want to take over it so that your glory will be great in me, not my glory. Right. And so he says, he says, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God cares nothing about all the good things that we're doing if our heart has allegiances and affections in other places. So he says, I ask for forgiveness. I confess my sin. I plead for cleansing. I plead for cleansing. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. God, I want to be completely clean. I want to be completely pure. Go through the ceremonies that need to be gone through. I want to know what it's like to have joy in you again. I want to know what it's like to have gladness in you again. I want to know what it's like to go into the ceremony of God's people and raise my hands with a pure heart and a clean heart that desires nothing but your praise and and everybody and everything to give honor and glory to you. That's what he longs for. That's what he, that's what he asked for. He's not saying here and hide your face. He's not saying sweep my sins under the rug. No, he's just saying get rid of them. Completely eradicate all my iniquities. And church, I think that it is, it is so important for us to see in verse 8 where he says let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Because the fact is God may have to break your bones in order to reclaim your heart. And you know what we need to do? We need to thank God that he's willing to break our bones in order to reclaim our hearts. He says, I plead for cleansing. And then he says, I pray for revival. I pray for revival. Not not for a corporate revival, at least not yet. Not for a church revival, at least not yet. I pray for personal revival. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And restore to me, Lord, all that I've known with you in years past. Cast me not away from your presence. Don't throw me out. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Church, keep your eyes on verses 10 and 11 and 12 because this is really the heartbeat of the psalm, the heartbeat of the prayer of repentance. Notice he says, I'm gonna pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm gonna be a new person. Is that what he says? Is that what he says, church? No. Whose job, whose role is it for him to have a clean heart. It's God's. God, you create in me a clean heart. God, you renew a right spirit in me. God, you don't cast me away from your presence. God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. God, you restore to me the joy of your salvation. God, you uphold me with a willing spirit. The repenter understands that repentance is a gift from God. It is granted by Him. It is worked from Him. And so we had to plead to Him, Lord, I know I can't do it on my own. I can't work it up. I can't create it. Only You can. This is Your work, so I cast myself humbly before You and honestly before You, confessing my sins, knowing my faults. Lord, You do this work. And then also, though, look not only at His focus on God, But look at his focus on himself. David is not concerned with other people. He is not concerned with other people's sins. He's not concerned with other people's mistakes. He says, create in me. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And David has the spotlight right where it needs to be. He's saying, I own my sin. I'm guilty of sin. I'm responsible for sin. It's me who needs cleansing. It's me who needs renewing. It's me who needs rejuvenating. It's me who needs restoring. There may be sinners out there, but I don't know about them because I know I'm a sinner and I need God's grace. And church, I want to tell you, I going to show you, where we go wrong is we want to point our fingers all the time at other people's sins. We want to blame other people. When, When things are not going well with us, we want to say it's their fault, it's her fault, it's his fault, it's your fault. But it's not my fault. And David says, it is my fault. I own it. It's me. He would say, like Paul, I am the chief of sinners. I don't have to know anybody else's sin because I know that my sin is terrible. And so, Lord, would you create in me a clean heart? Now, notice a few things, church. He doesn't ask for a new heart. David is not a Christian who needs to be born again, again. No, he's a believer. He already has a heart that beats for God. He just needs a clean heart. And so I just want to give you kind of some affirmation. If you're a Christian... You trust in Jesus Christ. Your heart does beat for the glory of God. And you fall into sin. You don't need to be saved again. You don't need to be born again again. You don't need to be baptized again. What you need is a heart that is cleansed, that is purified, that that is made anew again by the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. He says, creating me a clean heart, O God. And when he says a right spirit, church, I want you to know that's a firm spirit, a resolved spirit. It it has the picture of having an uprightness about you, a stiff back, so that no matter what comes at you, you're not gonna fall for it. No matter what tempts you, you're not gonna, gonna find yourself getting involved in it. You are resolved to live for God's glory and God's praise because you have a spirit within him. And then when he says, don't cast me from your presence. Don't throw me out. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Some might say, why would he even pray that? We we know that God is gracious. We know that he's loving. We know that, that he doesn't take his Holy Spirit from people who already have it. Who do you think David might have in mind right here? Saul. God did cast Saul out. God did take the Holy Spirit from Saul. David witnessed it. David experienced what it's like for somebody to have the Spirit taken away from him because he became the brunt of all of Saul's hatred and murderous plotting. But church, I do want you to know this is a bit technical, but what Saul had and what David had is what's called the theocratic anointing of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that kings had a special anointing from the Spirit of God because they were God's king. They were God's man to lead all of God's, all of God's people. And what God said when when Saul had sinned and he had just completely disobeyed the Lord and he had led the people astray, he said, I'm taking my royal blessing of my Holy Spirit off of you. You no longer have that blessing. You no longer have that kingly royal blessing of my spirit. And I'm putting it on somebody else. I'm putting it on David. And David had experienced it. Church, that's why he was able to have all those victories in chapter 8. That's why he was able to experience that, uh, that love and that compassion and that supremacy in chapter 10. Because he has his spirit. He said, I don't want that to go. I don't want you to strip me of that power and that presence and that blessing that you've had on me all my life. Lord, don't take it away. And so he's pleading for that. And then he says, restore to me. He doesn't say restore to me my salvation. I have my salvation. I'm a delivered person because I trust in you and I trust in your promises and your provisions. But restore to me what? Joy. Joy. You know, the fact is, is that joy and sin cannot coexist. Joy, sin. They cannot coexist. So if you want to live in sin, then you cannot live in joy. If you want to live in sin, you cannot rejoice on Sundays. If you want to live in sin, you cannot be used by God to help sinners. If you want to live in sin, then you can say, I am, I don't want, I'm just not going to be used by God to build His kingdom, and I'm not going to experience God Himself. But if you want to rejoice and you want to live in a constant inner delight that is not dependent on circumstances or people or money or health, but you want to know what it is to have delight in God always, then what you'll say is, I want to be rid, with, I want to be rid of sin. I want to be done with sin in my life. Because they, they cannot coexist together. And so he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And so he, all of this is to say, restore me personally. Restore me individually. Restore my heart. Restore my mind. Restore all that I am and all that I have so that my heart will beat loudly. My heart will beat passionately for Your praise and Your honor, God. It has in the past, and I trust that it will in the future as You restore me in Your power. I know that You can do it. Lord, please, restore me personally. And now He says, use me corporately. Use me corporately. I commit to praise you publicly, God. Then, that is, once you've restored me, once you've produced a revival inside my heart, once you've completely cleansed me and blotted out my transgressions and and I've got a clean heart now, this is what I will do. I will teach transgressors your ways. I, I will teach sinners and they will return to you. And when he says, I'll teach, he said, I'll instruct them. I I will help them turn back. I will give them instruction. I will give them lessons. I will give them testimony in my own life and how I experienced it so that not just I will return, but many will return to you. And so, Lord, deliver me from blood guiltiness. I'm guilty of murder. I'm guilty of shedding blood for sure. Lord, deliver me from that. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I will call out loudly. The word literally means to shrill. But it is a really loud noise that is going on among the people of God. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. This word declare means to provide an explanation to announce Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I won't just go in the corporate people of God and raise my hands and bow my knees and sing these songs and pray these prayers, but I will give an explanation of how you created in, in me a clean heart, how you restored to me the joy of your salvation, how you upheld me by a right spirit, how you didn't take your Holy Spirit from me, how you didn't cast me out. I will give testimony to that in such a way that other people can experience that same personal rebellion that I have and then a corporate revival might break out, oh God. Use me corporately. I commit to praise you publicly. Not only I do that, I commit to love you inwardly. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God. You will not despise. Lord, what am I saying? I'm saying that I understand that if I were to go and offer up these burnt offerings and these whole sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs and all of these things, and I was just going through the motions. The fact is, church, that, that David's sin went on for at least nine months, right? And in those nine months, do you think they ever had any type of of corporate celebrations of God? Do you think they had any public worship services? Sure they did. Sure they did. Sure sure they they, they experienced um, the Day of Atonement, very possibly. They experienced um, um, Passover. That's the word I was thinking. Thank you. They experienced Passover. And surely David went in as the lead worshiper of Israel. And surely he participated in the killing of bulls and the and the Um, slinging of the blood over the Ark of the Covenant and the raising of his hands and the bowing of his knees as the lead worshiper of all of Israel when in reality inside his heart, in those secret places, in those plugged up places, he's holding murder, he's holding adultery, he's holding the abuse of power and covetousness close to his heart and yet the outside of him looks like he is the lead worshiper of Israel. And that's why he says right here, He says, you don't delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. You'll be pleased with a burnt offering. What you're looking for is a completely shattered spirit, a completely crushed heart. You're looking for humility. You're looking for brokenness. You're looking for weakness, as we just sang church. That's what God is looking for. And the reality is this. If if you come, if you come to God, in a well put together, in a I can do this, my life is in great shape, I look good, I sound good, I am good, there's nothing wrongness about you when you come into worship, then God will not accept your worship. We must come in the reality of our brokenness, in the reality of our neediness, in the reality of our dependence, if God is ever going to accept our worship. So he says, I commit to love you inwardly, in my heart, in my spirit, before I ever commit to to love you corporately in all of these sacrifices and offerings. And then he finally says, I commit to worship you ceremonially. I, I commit to worship you corporately. He says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. Then you will delight in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And bulls will be offered on your altar. Wait a minute, David, I thought you just said that God doesn't delight in all of that corporate kind of worship. Uh, What are you talking about? He says, oh, he does delight in corporate worship. When individuals' hearts are turned toward Him. That's right. yeah. When individuals' hearts truly do long for God and, ex- and ex- exercise dependence on Him and honesty before Him and repentance to Him. Then when that happens, God will take all the ceremonies, He will take all the sacrifices, He will take all the corporate worship, the raising of hands, the bowing of knees, the praying of prayers, He'll take it all and He'll he'll receive it as a sweet-smelling aroma to Him because it's made from a people who are honest and humble and contrite of heart. They are broken before their God. And so He says, Restore me personally and use me corporately. Church, this is basically what David prays. I'm guilty of sinning terribly against you, God, but I know that you have both the power and the pleasure to forgive me of my sins and to restore the joy of, of an abiding spirit with you and an abiding presence in my life. And so, Lord, do a cleansing work in me personally so that I can be resolved to lead others corporately, so that others can know your grace. That's, that's the essence of Psalm 51. It is restore me personally and use me corporately. Work in me personally so that you can work through me corporately. Restore my relationship with you so that you can increase my influence for you. That's the king in his repentance and if you're taking notes this is what I'll have you write down this would be the big idea right here when we sin against God when we sin against God and we all do when we sin against God we should confess our sins and seek full restoration when we sin against God we should confess our sins and seek full restoration not partial restoration Not not him do a part and we do a part and, and we'll see what happens. No, seek full restoration because God will not only forgive us. Because God will not only forgive us, he will completely restore us to himself. He will not only forgive us, he will completely restore us to himself and then get this, and use us in ministry to others. And yeah. use us in ministry to others. Yeah. What is that old saying that, that we're just a bunch of beggars who found bread who are helping other beggars find bread? Yeah. Something of that nature? Yeah. I agree with that, but there is a sense of Psalm 51 where we don't stay in like this constant begging state, but that we get to enjoy the feast of knowing God. We get to get up to the table and, and we can sit on one end And our God sits on the other end and we see him and we fellowship with him and we laugh with him and we enjoy him. Have you ever been around like an important person or a famous person or a very very powerful person who is great and wonderful and you really just want to hear what they have to say? And you want to ask them questions and you want to hear their responses and you want to glean from their wisdom and, and all of that? Well, in a much grander, grander, grander scale, that's what we get to enjoy when we get restored with God. We get to sit at the table and be with Him and listen to Him and laugh with Him and enjoy Him and, and, and just, just bask in the glory of of His goodness to us. And that's really what David is asking for. He, he's basically saying, I basked in the glory of my own sinfulness, my own selfishness, my own lust, my own covetousness, my abuse of power, and all of the ways in which I sinned against you. I basked in that, and I had no joy, and I had no sweetness. And it ultimately produced bitterness in me. It produced selfishness in me. And God, I don't want that anymore. I want to be at Your table, the ultimate King, and I want to enjoy Your you forever so i i have to ask the question and so do you how does our experience compare with david's david lived a thousand years before jesus we live two thousand years after jesus came to the earth how does our how do our experiences compare with one another well, the first thing that we've got to say is that David trusted in the promises and plans that God had made, the provisions that he made, right? And the system of worship that God had established, David worked within it. And he, and he responded in faith with it. But you and I, we understand that Jesus is the greater king and he's the greater David. So church, Let's think about Jesus as king when he walked on the earth. Let me ask you a question. Did did Jesus ever exercise passivity? Like, was he ever in a place that he, he shouldn't be, not doing a thing that he shouldn't do with a people that he shouldn't do it with? No. Jesus was never passive. Jesus never lusted. He always loved. That is, he always sought the highest good of the object of his love. Was Jesus covetous? No. As a matter of fact, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I'm just a servant. Did Jesus ever abuse his power? No, he didn't abuse his power. He actually used his power to come underneath people to serve them, to love them, to care for them. Did he ever commit murder? Was he hateful? No. No, he never committed murder. He never was hateful. He was always loving and cared for people's deepest and most profound needs. Jesus is the ultimate king. He is the great king. He lived the kind of life that a king should live. He lived the kind of life that Saul should have lived, that David should have lived, and neither of them did. And yet, church, and yet, our king Jesus was put up on a cross. As if he had been passive, as if he had lusted, as if he had coveted, as if he had abused his power, as if he had murdered. And when he is up on that cross, he says, he says essentially, Father, forgive them. Like, I am their whole burnt offering. Father, forgive them. I am their whole sacrifice. Forgive them. I am being offered up on the altar as the ultimate bull, as the ultimate lamb. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Listen, David's not the ultimate king. Jesus is the ultimate king. And even though He's the ultimate king and never sinned and always obeyed, He shows His ultimateness not by Him lording it over us, by coming underneath us and serving us on the cross by saying, forgive them. Listen, we do worship God by offering a lamb. We do worship God by offering a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is Jesus Himself, our King. He is worthy of our worship today. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of our hearts. And so I'd like for us to enter into a time of repentance right now. Would you... Would you please just bow your heads? Don't worry about taking any notes. Don't worry about writing anything down. And definitely don't worry about what other people are doing, what other people are thinking. I want you to think about your own life and your own heart I just want to think in terms of those two parts of repentance. Restore me personally and use me corporately. Some of you are in need of repentance right now. You need to open up those closed doors of your heart that nobody else knows about. Those sins that you have that are completely unexposed except to God. You need to open those up before God and you need to say, Lord, cleanse me, renew me, restore me, blot out my transgressions. And You need to name them. And you need to ask God to give you a hatred for them a despising of them as you confess them. Some of you are living humbly before our God and you're sinning but you're repenting. You're sinning but you're repenting and you're enjoying a sweet season of joyful obedience. But you know what you're doing? You're keeping your mouth shut about God's grace in your life. You're not testifying. You're not declaring. You're not helping others enjoy personal revival. You're living in a vacuum with God. And it's just you and Him. And so, you'll, you'll go a while and you'll obey and then you'll disobey and sin and you'll, you'll repent and then you'll get back in good graces with Him and you'll keep on going. Listen, your sin and your repentance are not to be done in a vacuum. And I had a, A man in my office this morning confessing his sin and telling me about his struggles and how the Lord is working in his life. And I said to him, that is a grace to me. You're helping me by confessing your sin and declaring God's grace in your heart. Thank you for opening up because I see it. I feel my own need for it. And I know God's grace in it. And so church, this is what I want to call you to. I want to call you to be restored completely, but to be resolved, to be used corporately. God never saves you to live a singular self-life before God. He calls you to live corporately before the people of God that everyone might bask in the glory of repentance and faith and humility and honesty and real love. Church, repentance is turning your back on sin and your heart toward God. That's what we see in David. We see a man who turns his back on his passivity. He turns his back on his adultery. He turns his back on murder. He turns back on his evil scheming. And he opens up his heart To God. He exposes his faults. He exposes his secret sins. He opens up those locked doors and he says, God, have at it, have at it. And while you're cleansing me and while you're exposing me, while you're doing this work, Lord, I don't want to just do it for myself. I want to do it for all of your people that there might be a corporate revival. There, there might be a church-wide revival that we know your blessing and your presence and your, and your sweet sweet love for us on a daily basis. Lord, I pray that my repentance will not be a one-time thing, but a lifetime thing. And it won't be a personal thing, but it'll be a corporate thing that you may be praised in this world. That's His prayer. Is that your prayer today? Cry out to God right now. If you want to be restored personally, if you want to be used corporately, Tell the Lord and plead with Him in this very moment.